So this does begin a new section then in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that the previous section, beginning in 517, leading all the way up to the end of chapter 5, is one that concerns a greater righteousness. Throughout, Jesus teaches that his disciples are to walk, conduct their lives with a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Not greater in quantity, but greater in quality. Jesus is not speaking in this previous section about moral perfection. He understands better than any of us that his disciples will indeed fail and do so regularly. But his concern is that their righteousness issues from a new heart. One that begins with a life of faith in him as Lord and Savior. It is the foundation of the Christian ethic. As I've argued, you can go elsewhere in the New Testament to find out what it looks like to be a Christian. To live out your lives in accordance with the moral commands of Scripture. And there, certainly in the epistles, you may find more detail, but you will not find less than that which Christ gives here. This is the ground zero of what it means to follow him in a life that begins with faith and follows with obedience. And I pray that over the last few weeks, as we've submitted to these texts collectively, that God has done a work in your heart by his Spirit, that you've come to terms with how your life matches up to the commands of Christ. That where necessary, you have, by God's grace, made changes so that you are now walking in a way that is more reflective of what Jesus expects from his disciples. As we enter into this new section then, Jesus teaches about the dangers of practicing such righteousness. It's a new section, but there is a strong line of continuity as he follows on, having just given the ground zero for what it looks like to be a disciple. He then begins chapter 6 with the imperative, beware. Be careful of living out this righteousness specifically in public. Jesus here in this section issues a warning. Be very careful about following this teaching. Why? Because Jesus, being the great physician, knows our hearts better than we know them ourselves. And he understands the tendency that sits within all of us to pursue righteousness with the wrong motive. And that is the point of the text, that we live out our righteousness with the right motive. Jesus knows the tendency that is within all of us to pursue righteous deeds for the praise of men. And he explains that if that's the way you conduct your lives, all efforts... To submit to my commands will be of no eternal value. No lasting.
lasting value to your righteous deeds, you will receive no reward from your Father in heaven. That's the warning he gives, and the exhortation that follows from that then is that his disciples would be those who conduct their lives with what we might call a hidden righteousness. Those who follow after the Lord Jesus Christ should be pursuing righteousness that is, in its very intent, hidden. Which is not necessarily to say that everything we do is conducted in private. In fact, we'll see it's impossible to do so. But the desire of our heart is that it would be a righteousness hidden from men, conducted exclusively for the sight of our Father who sees in secret. The structure of the text is that Jesus issues first the warning in verse 1, and then he gives instruction by way of two examples. So we'll follow the warning that Jesus gives in verse 1, and then the two examples that he gives that constitutes the instruction That we would be those who pursue righteousness absolutely, but do so not for the praise of men, but for the reward that our Father in heaven will give. Considering then first the warning. Verse 1, beware. Be careful. Having just explained at length what Jesus expects from those who have received the gift of of salvation, he then immediately follows to say, and be careful as you seek to live your lives in obedience to my command. Beware of practicing this righteousness towards which I have just exhorted you. Considering simply the fact that Jesus finds it appropriate to warn us, reminds us of the subtle nature of sin. The fact that sin would find a path to express itself in our lives, even through our righteous deeds, tells us of its subtle nature. Sin will seek to flourish wherever it may find a path in your life, and that may include through your righteousness. So as Jesus has commanded us towards a greater righteousness, it is then necessary to draw our attention to the dangers. It is a dangerous place to be. To be a disciple of Christ, submitting to his commands, is a dangerous place to be. Because you open yourself up to, as it were, a new kind of sin that is incredibly subtle. It is subtle because it is not easily seen. The subtlety of the sin that Jesus highlights in this text is one that sits within our hearts and is not readily identified either by us or by others. When you see someone pursuing righteous deeds within the church, who's to say what their motive is? When you go about acts of service and do that which Christ has commanded of you, who's to say what is going on in the depths of your heart? 
And so you see, it's a dangerous place to be submitting to Christ's righteousness that he commends you towards, not least because of the issue of your motive. And I trust you recognize there is now a tension within this one sermon. Jesus has highlighted a real present tension that exists in every Christian's life. Look back at chapter 5, verse 16. There, Jesus commanded us to let your light shine before others. That's an imperative that comes to you, that rests upon you. Let your light shine before others. I praise God each and every time a Christian is willing and ready to conduct their life in the public sphere. It's a wonderful thing when Christians assume positions within society that will draw attention to their faith. Because now there is an opportunity for the light of the gospel to shine before those who don't know Christ. Consider just some of the commands that Christ gave within that broader section. He said, by way of example, as you remember, when somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek. Again, it's a very public kind of righteousness. You can't hide that. The very essence of the command inherently is one that engages with the world. In that case, where they are hostile towards you, don't respond in likeness, but turn the other cheek. And there is this notion in the righteousness towards which Christ has been commanding us in which we cannot entirely retreat. We're supposed to be those who are living our lives in the sight of others. And the tension that Jesus now draws into view is that as you live your life, In the sight of others, your motive can so easily shift, so quickly move away from a desire to please your Father in heaven towards a desire to receive the affirmation of others. The motive of your heart as you pursue your righteousness can so easily become a desire to be praised by men. Why would Jesus be so concerned to draw our attention to this sin, to this issue, to this problem of motive? For one of two reasons, the desire to receive the praise of men will dishonor God In at least one of two ways. Think back to 5.16. There Jesus says, let your light shine before others. And he gives the reason so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the idea is, Jesus says, you are to conduct your life in view of others so that when they see your righteous deeds, their hearts and even their lips Respond in praise to your Father who is in heaven. And when we were considering that text, we noted there is a real way in which an unbeliever may acknowledge the work of God in your life. 
It may even be a way that leads to salvation. The testimony of your life can be such that God uses it to draw them into an articulation and then in turn a reception of the gospel such that they are now a child of our Father in heaven. This is exactly what happened with the Apostle Paul. Think about the autobiographical passage in Galatians chapter 1 where he says, the Lord saved me on the Damascus road. Previously, I was persecuting Christians. I did all that I could to make sure that they had a miserable existence. And now I'm a preacher of the gospel. And he says in Galatians chapter 1, those who knew me previously then looked at me, they heard of my preaching and proclaiming of Christ, and they praised our Father who is in heaven. They responded to his good works by praising his God. Jesus makes plain that's how we're to conduct ourselves When you so manipulate your righteous deeds to get, receive the praise of men. By contrast, when you go about your righteousness, not so much with the desire that others would praise your Father who is in heaven, but so that they would praise you, you are now robbing God of his glory. You are taking glory from him. It rightly belongs to him. He did that work in your life. The only reason you have the desire, the inclination to pursue a righteous deed is because God has so worked in your heart that that now is now appealing to you. You can't do otherwise as a Christian. He did that work in your life. And as you do that righteous deed in such a way that you receive the praise of men, you are robbing God of his glory. You could put it like this, you are now choosing to stand in the place of God. But it goes further, it goes deeper. What is the issue of living out your righteousness so as to receive the praise of others Our hearts, our desire factories. It has been said before, our hearts are factories that pump out desires one after another continuously. And one of the strongest, most persistent desires that issues from the human heart is that which seeks affirmation of others. Everybody in this room desires to be accepted. Everyone here without exception desires to be affirmed by others. I may not necessarily know you or the desires of your heart in such a way that you have expressed them to me in transparency. And yet with utter confidence, I can say I know The desire in your heart that is so persistent is one that wants the affirmation of others. We so desperately want to be accepted by those around us. It is often how we find our sense of security is through the praise of others. And what's interesting is that the examples that Jesus uses here that of giving to the needy and of praying in public, 
in his day would have been established cultural norms. This is standard practice for those in Jesus' day, such that when you pursued these deeds, you would readily receive the affirmation of others. They would be a means by which you would be accepted within the community. You're doing the thing that is accepted, which people applaud you for. And so potentially, he picks these examples to get at the issue that we all desire the affirmation of others as a means of feeling safe and secure. The problem with that is that our affirmation in an ultimate and final sense should really be sought from God. We seek affirmation ultimately from the one who made us. We should be seeking affirmation and acceptance from God, and He has made a way for it through Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, God accepts us fully. When we take Christ at His word and trust in Him, both as Lord and Savior, now we have the affirmation of our Father who is in heaven, so we do not need to seek it in sinful Flawed men. You might say it like this. The other issue with seeking the praise of men is that you now make the crowd in the position of God. You either put yourself in the position of God because you like the praise of men. You're robbing him of his glory. Or you render the crowd tantamount to God. You're putting them in a place that God rightly deserves to be. And most likely, because of just how complex are our hearts, it's some dynamic of both each and every time we seek the praise of men. And of course, our hearts are no different today. They're no different today from Jesus' day. In fact, I would say the issue of doing righteous deeds for the affirmation, the praise of others is potentially more of an issue than perhaps it was when Jesus spoke these words. A persistent issue in the church today, the reason I say that is because we live in a society that teaches us to seek affirmation from others. In the age in which we live, where communication is so frequent and so easy, especially through the mediums of social media, we are being taught implicitly to receive the affirmation of others or to look for it? Why else do you put anything out there other than to receive the praise of others? And so as we are encouraged towards this end, all the more we need to assess our motives. We are those who are terrified of receiving any criticism. We are those who are desperate to get the praise of others. So much so that we would even manipulate the righteous deeds that are conducted within the church as a means of being praised by men. And Jesus says you need to be very, very careful. Be careful of living your lives in this way. If you practice your righteousness before other people with the motive of being seen by them, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
And you see the logic. The logic is very simple, and Jesus will make reference to it again in just a few verses' time. If indeed your motive has been to receive praise from others, then you've ha- you have the thing that you've sought. If your motive is to receive praise from others and you receive it, you have the thing that you so desperately wanted. Which means when you get to heaven, your father will say, I have nothing for you. You wanted their praise and you received it, so I have nothing for you. Jesus brings into view then the doctrine, the biblical truth that we will receive a heavenly reward for our righteous deeds. And thus we can play out the picture very, very simply, whether you are 15 or 50. If you are here this morning with faith in Christ, very soon you will be in glory. Very soon you will be in glory. And I want to be very clear, that day will be a glorious day. It will be joy-filled. You will step into glory and there will be a celebration of your life. There will be a celebration of your life that begins with the imputed righteousness of Christ. Understand, if you are a Christian here today, very soon you will be in glory. And when you arrive, there will be a celebration, a heavenly celebration of your life that begins with the imputed righteousness of Christ. The heavenly host will celebrate that there is not a sin against you. The heavenly host will celebrate your perfection that has been granted to you, an alien righteousness that comes from Christ. There will be in that day no punitive judgment. You will not be punished. You will not face judgment in a way that God seeks to punish. But there will be a judgment for believers. The scriptures teach there will be a judgment of believers' works. You are in glory because of your faith in Christ, but God will test the works that you did. He will weigh them as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning and understand again, he will be quick to reward you. God is a loving, heavenly Father, and He desires to heap rewards on His children. He will richly reward you for your righteous deeds in that day. I think about it often. There are many who in that day will be so richly rewarded in ways that perhaps we do not anticipate. So many who have pursued their righteous deeds hidden from the sight of others. I think often about motherhood. How richly mothers will be rewarded in that day. Their role being so demanding and yet so hidden. Not open for others to gaze in and praise them. So often overlooked and yet that day is coming when God will be quick to reward their righteous deeds. But know that in that day, God will also pass over many of your efforts. 
everything you have ever done will be put on display. In that day, he will pass over many of your righteous deeds. Why? Because you did them for the praise of men. You won't petition. God is a just God. He will be fair. There will be no disputes. You will see them as plainly as he sees them right now. Motives and all. And so you won't petition. Though now you might think of these righteous deeds and say, but God, why would you pass over that time when I turned the other cheek in the workplace? You saw how that unbeliever came after me and you know it was because of my faith and you saw how I didn't retaliate because of your word. And God will say, yes, and I also saw that the reason you did that was to receive the praise of others. God, you saw how I petitioned for my brother who is in Christ and that trial in his life and you know how I prayed for him. Why no reward today for my praying for him? Because you prayed for him in order that you might go and tell him that you had been praying for him. You did it for the praise of men. And so there is much that may be passed over in that day. You will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now as I describe that reality that is coming to us all very soon. It might be that there is no distress in your heart. That your conscience is not at all weighed heavy. By the possibility of your works being passed over by your Father who is in heaven, perhaps you are not in any way disturbed by that reality. And the truth is, perhaps, that if that is how you respond to that idea, it's not because all your works are done perfectly with the right motive, but in fact, none of them are. The reason that you're not flustered or bothered by the notion of God passing over your works is because you have not actually been reconciled to him. You have nothing in your heart that speaks of a heavenly reality and one day you being there with him in glory. Pay attention to the logic of our scripture reading this morning. 1 Corinthians 3 is to believers in the church. And Paul says, if your works are done with an improper motive, those works will be burned up. You, the Christian, will be in glory, though only as through fire to the unbeliever. The logic of the argument is the believer will be, the unbeliever will be consumed by the fire. The Christian will be in glory. His place is secure. Why? Because of the righteousness of Christ. No other reason. But the unbeliever, however good your life may appear, you will be burned, consumed by the fire. And so for you, you have to repent of your sin, your righteous deeds this morning. 
Repent of your righteous deeds. Repent of all that you are and everything you do. And find in Christ a Savior. Now if you're a Christian. And you understand the warning that Christ is giving. So subtle an issue. You're submitting to his teaching about a greater, higher righteousness in its essence, in its very DNA. It looks different. But that's a very dangerous place to live your life. Why? Because of the problem of motive. If you are a believer here this morning, then the question is, how do I correct my motive? How can I live in such a way that the intention of my heart is pleasing to God? Jesus gives us instruction by way of two examples. The first, giving to the needy, he says in verse 2, in response to the warning, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet. There are no examples that we have of trumpets physically being sounded in the giving of To the needy, Jesus is speaking here not about tithing, not giving to the religious institution of the day, but another practice that would have been common in his day, giving to the poor and the needy. It would be something that frequently receives praise from others. And so likely here, he's using trumpet as a metaphor. Don't parade it. Don't put it on display with the intention of receiving that praise. Don't do that as the hypocrites do. Who are the hypocrites? I think foremost in Jesus' mind would have been the Pharisees. I trust you've noticed that we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, just how much of a polemic Jesus is forming against the Pharisees of the day. But... It is significant that Jesus chooses the word hypocrite here just to show how applicable this sin is to anyone. I think the Pharisees would have been front and center in his mind, but he chooses hypocrite so as to we know that it is applicable to anyone. And the hypocrite in view is not someone who's going about an evil work, parading it as good, not that kind of hypocrisy, Rather, someone who's going about a good work, but parading it as if it is rendered unto God when it is really there for the praise of men. Don't do that. Truly, I say to you, you've received your reward. The hypocrites have received their reward. Verse 3, but when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Again, Jesus is using here hyperbolic language. You remember when we looked at his teaching on lust, he said, pluck out the eye, cut off the hand. Hyperbolic language, Jesus knows that's not going to fix the sin issue. Plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand doesn't get to the root of the issue He uses hyperbolic language to show just how deliberate, intentional, and fierce our fight against the problem ought to be. In the same way here, give in such a way that 
Your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. And again, if we stand back and consider the public nature of the Christian's life, let your light shine. We understand it is physically impossible to truly do all of our righteous deeds in secret. It's physically impossible to do all of our righteous deeds in secret. Many of them necessitate an engagement with the world. So Jesus uses this phrase here, above all things, to speak about the intention of our hearts. He is exhorting us to a secret hidden righteousness. Now, I do think there is wisdom where and when possible to go about your good deeds in private. Very practically, I do think there is wisdom to think through what of your righteous deeds could be done so that no one sees them. At the same time, understand there are many righteous deeds that the Bible commands us to pursue that have to be done in the sight of others. Those you must do with an inner disposition of not seeking the praise of others, of utmost secrecy, so that your Father who sees in secret will reward you, and you are not doing it for the praise of others. Jesus gives a second example that makes the same point. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. I say to you again, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, just think with me for a minute about how subtle the outworking of sin can be in our lives. That Jesus uses the example of praying to think that it is entirely possible for a believer to pray before others words such as, God, I praise you. And the motive being, may they praise me. That's how ugly sin can be in our lives. And so Jesus says, you go about your prayers in such a manner that you are hidden in the closet. The door is shut. No one hears you except your Father who is in heaven, who hears and who sees in secret. That's when you have your heavenly reward. As a pastor, this is one passage that I think ought to weigh heavy upon me. As I've thought about it this week and thought about it many times before, the reality are those that are in ministry, serving publicly in the church, can't but conduct themselves in the sight of others. So much of my job is simply to live out a righteousness before others. To preach God's word to those who will listen. To lead others in prayer. 
to exhort and commend others towards righteousness. And I firmly believe that the most effective form of leadership is to lead by example. So you ask others to do something, make sure you're right there leading the way. It's an occupational hazard. You're doing your righteousness before others. And so there is this sober warning to check your motives. Check the attitude of your heart. Why are you doing this? Why are you saying this? Are you going about your ministry with an attitude of hidden righteousness? A man named Nikolaus Zinzendorf famously said that his goal in life was to preach the gospel, to die, and to be forgotten. And I pray often that God would give me that attitude. God, may I be pleased to be forgotten. May I delight to be forgotten. So how? How do we develop in our hearts this attitude of hidden righteousness in light of the danger of improper motives? The answer is you tell yourself the truth. Now what do I mean by that? 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to God as our Father. Ten of those times are in this section. Ten of the 17 times when Jesus refers to God as Father in the whole sermon are in this one section alone, which shows us He wants us to be thinking about our relationship with our Father in heaven. He's laboring the gospel truth that by the life and death and resurrection of Christ, we've been adopted into this heavenly family and we come to God now not as judge, but as a loving heavenly Father. And it is as simple as telling yourself the truth that my Father in heaven loves me completely in Christ, therefore I do not need the praise of men. Again, my Father in heaven loves me completely in Christ, and for that reason I do not need to seek the praise of men. The Christian life, in one sense, is so wonderfully simple. You wake up each morning and preach the gospel to yourself and allow the grace that comes forth from the cross to order your steps. Not only what you do, but how you do it. And if you are negligent to preach the gospel to yourself, do not expect that your motive will be right when you pursue deeds of righteousness. My Father in heaven loves me completely in Christ. So I don't need the praise of men. When you minister that truth to your heart continuously, you are then free to pursue a life of righteousness with a proper motive 
and to look forward to your heavenly reward. Pray with me now to respond. Father, we give you thanks for Christ's warning. As he commands us towards righteousness, he so warns us of our motives. Our hearts our desire factories, pumping out desires. And you know we so desperately want the praise of men. So much so that we would even manipulate our righteous deeds in a manner that receives praise from others, robbing you of your glory allowing ourselves to feel affirmed and accepted by those around us. Forgive us for our righteous deeds that have dishonored you. Teach us to minister the truth of the gospel to our hearts. You are our Father in heaven because of Christ. You are our loving Father in heaven because of Jesus Christ. You accept us fully because of his blood. And so we don't need the praise of men. May we be faithful to minister those truths to our hearts, to speak those truths to one another in the church, to speak those truths to ourselves. And as we do so, would our motives be right? The solution is not to stop practicing righteousness. Oh, Father, would we be zealous towards good deeds with the right motive? Not seeking the praise of others, but your good pleasure. May we look forward to that glorious day when you will reward us for every deed done with the proper motive. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.